0: This is Luther's Works, Linker Edition, Volume 14, page 184, 18th Sunday after Trinity. This is the second sermon on Matthew 22:34 34 to 46. And this one appeared instead of the preceding one in the C edition. And it says title, A Beautiful Sermon on the Law and the Gospel. That's the way it was published in that time. Now we'll read the text. We read it on the last tape, but we'll read it on this one too. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. And then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David then call him Lord, how is he his son? No man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. In this gospel, Christ answers the question the Pharisees put to him, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And in turn asks them the question, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Thus this gospel presents to us that which we continually hear and should hear, so that these two sermons must continue to be preached in Christendom, namely the first, the teaching of the law, or of the Ten Commandments, and the second, the doctrine concerning the grace of Christ. For if either of these fall, it pulls the other with it, while on the other hand, wherever the one remains steadfast and is faithfully put into practice, it brings the other with it. Let's repeat that. For if either of these fall, it pulls the other with it, while on the other hand, wherever the one remains steadfast and is faithfully put into practice, it brings the other with it. And God has ordained that these two things shall be preached forever in the Christian Church. Yea, they have always since the beginning of the world accompanied one another. They were given to our father Adam while he was still in paradise, were later confirmed through Abraham, Moses, and the prophets. For they are required by the needs of humanity, fallen as it is under the power of Satan, so that we live and move in sin are worthy of eternal death. Adam felt and lamented sin and its injuries, but later the sense of sin soon weakened and was disregarded, so that the heathen did not consider it sin, although they indeed felt evil lust and desire in their bodies. But they imagined all that belonged to the character and nature of man. Yet, they taught man should restrain such lust and desires and not allow them to go too far but this nature in itself they did not condemn. Therefore God gave this one simple teaching that reveals what man is, what he has been, what he should again become. This is the doctrine of the law which Christ here cites. Thou shalt love God with all thy heart, and so forth. As if to say, Thus thou hast been, and thus thou shalt still be and become. Paradise, you were in possession of the treasure and were thus created that you loved God with all your heart. This you've lost, but now you must again become as you were, or you will never enter into the kingdom of God. In like manner he speaks clearly and plainly in other places. Matthew 19:17. Thou wouldest enter into life, keep the commandments. Luke ten twenty eight, This do, and thou shalt live, and so forth. This must, in short, be kept, and that we wish to dispute so much about it amounts to nothing, as if one might be saved without it, namely, without that which is called loving God, with the whole heart, and our neighbor as ourselves. This divine law must be fulfilled by you as purely and completely as the angels in heaven fulfill it. Therefore it's wrong and not to be allowed, as some in ancient times said, and as some stupid spirits now say, although you do not keep the commandment, do not love God and your neighbor. Yea, although you are even an adulterer, that makes no difference. If you only believe, then you will be saved. No, dear mortal, that amounts to nothing. You will never thus gain heaven. It must come to the point that you keep the commandments and abide in love toward God and your neighbor. For there it stands, briefly determined. If thou wouldest enter into life, keep the commandments. Again to the Galatians in five, nineteen, twenty, 20, and 21, quote, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, Fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, yeah. seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revellings, and such like, of the which I tell you before. As I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Christ wishes this doctrine to be observed by the Christians so that they may know what they've been, what they are still lacking, and what they should again become. That they continue not in the misery and filth in which they find themselves now, for if they do, they must be lost. Christ speaks here right out plainly in Matthew 5:17 and 18. Think not that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, and this is Luther's version, the law must be so taught and observed that not the smallest letter one tittle of it shall any wise pass away till all things be accomplished. Now our version's a little different. Again, Christ says further in Matthew 12, 36, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. And St. Paul in Romans 8:4. The righteousness of the law, that the light righteousness of the law, let's see if that's the right place for sure, yeah, he has a little bit on the third verse, says, let's see, I'll read some of the third verse too, for what the law could not do, and it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Luther didn't have that much. He only had this portion here. God sent his Son in the flesh that the righteousness required by the law might be fulfilled in us. In Romans three thirty-one, Do we then make void the law through faith, God forbid, yea, we establish the law. That is, for this very reason we teach faith by which the law is fulfilled. For this is indeed a glorious doctrine it teaches what we are to become but that it may also be realized and not continue to be preached in vain, the other doctrine must be added, namely how and through what means we may again return to our former state. We return when we hear what we lost in paradise, when Adam lived in full love to God, pure love to his neighbor, and perfect obedience without evil lust, and that had he remained us, we would still be sold. But now, since through sin he fell from this command, we also lie in the same misery, full of sin and disobedience, under God's wrath and curse, fall from one sin to another, and the law stands there, holds us guilty, urges and requires us to be pious and obedient to God. What shall we then do here, since the law continually commands and drives us and yet we are powerless; for here my own conscience argues ever against me, since I am to love God with my whole heart and my neighbor as myself, and I do and I do not do it, I must therefore be condemned, and God approves and confirms the sentence of condemnation. Who will counsel me in this instance? I do not know what to counsel you, says the law, but it decrees and demands plainly that you be obedient. And yet, must be continually taught in Christendom, Here the prophets come now and preach Christ, and they say, One is coming who will give counsel how man may regain what he lost, and again enter the state from which he fell, to which the law points him. This is the other sermon that should and must be preached until the day of judgment, namely, the help from sin, death, and Satan, and restoration of our bodies and souls, so that we may come into the state that we love God and our neighbor from our heart. This is to be done fully and perfectly in the future life, but here in this life it should be commenced. For in the life beyond there will be no longer any faith, but perfect love, and all the law demands, we will do with our whole heart. Therefore, we must now preach what we should become, and should continue forever to be, namely, that we are to love God and our neighbor with our whole heart. This I will commit, says Christ, and complete, not alone as to my own person, but I will aid you to become a be- to make a beginning and to continue ever in it till you come where you will also fulfill it perfectly. Now this will come to pass in this way. Since we are unable to keep the law and it's impossible for the natural man to do so, Christ came and stepped between the Father and us and praised for us. Beloved Father, be gracious unto them and forgive them their sins. I will take upon me their transgressions and bear them. I love thee with my whole heart, and in addition the entire human race, and this I will prove by shedding my blood for mankind. Moreover I have fulfilled the law, and I did it for their welfare, in order that they may partake of my fulfilling the law, and thereby come to grace. Thus there is first given us through Christ the sense that we do not fulfill the law, and that sin. There is first given us through Christ the sense that we do not fulfill the law. Why would he have to come if we did, right? And that sin is fully and completely forgiven. However, this is not bestowed in any way or to the end that we in the future need not keep the law, may forever continue to sin, or that we should teach. If we have faith, then we need no longer love God and our neighbor, But there is bestowed upon us the sense that the fulfilling of the law may now for the first time be successfully attempted, rather successfully attempted and perfectly realized. This is the eternal and perfectly realized experience. In other words, this is the eternal fixed and unchangeable will of God. To this end, it is necessary to preach grace, that man may find counsel and help to come to a perfect life. But the help offered us is that Christ prays the Father to forgive us our sins against this law, not to impute what we are still indebted. Then he promises also to give the Holy Spirit, by whose aid the heart begins to love God and to keep his commandments. For God is not gracious and merciful to sinners to the end that they might not keep his law that they should remain as they were before they received grace and mercy. But he condones and forgives both sin and death for the sake of Christ, who has fulfilled the whole law in order thereby to make the heart sweet and through the Holy Spirit to kindle and move the heart to begin again to love from day to day more and more. Thus begins in us not only love, but also truth, that is, a true character, as the law requires. Like St. John says in one seventeen, Christ is full of grace and truth. Through him grace and truth grow in us, which neither Moses nor the law can give us. For the law is not abolished thus by grace, that the truth is to be overlooked, and that we should not love God, but through him we experience that we do not as perfectly keep the law as we ought in the kingdom of grace and forgiveness. But besides, the Holy Spirit is given, who kindles a new flame or a fire in us, namely love and desire to do God's commandments. In the kingdom of grace this should begin and ever grow till the day of judgment. When it shall no longer be called grace or forgiveness, but pure truth and perfect obedience. In the meantime, he continues to give, forgive, bear, and forbear until we are laid in our graves. Now, if we thus continue in faith, that is, in what the Holy Spirit gives and forgives, in what he begins and ends, then the fire on the Judgment Day, by which the whole world is to be consumed, will cleanse and purify us, so that we will no longer need this giving and forgiving, as if there were something unclean and sinful in us, as there really is at present. We will certainly be, as the brightness of the dear sun, without spot and effect, full of love, as Adam was at the beginning in Paradise, And is not that where we want to be, not only through Christ, which I shouldn't maybe say it in that way, if we could say it in that way, but then Christ will have created us anew, which of course was through him, and we will do it perfectly in our own bodies. Thus will it then be truly said, The law is established and fulfilled, for it will then no longer blame and rebuke us, but the law shall be considered satisfied and the debt paid, even by ourselves, since all is now fulfilled, not through us, and yet by it we are freed and saved, so that we creep under Christ's mantle and wings that he make satisfaction for us until we lie under the earth and then come out again, out of the grave with a beautiful glorified body that will be nothing but holiness and purity, with a cleansed soul full of the love of God. Then we will no longer be in need of his mantle and of his prayers, but we will all be there perfect and complete as we should be. Now, since I believe in Him, my sins are forgiven, and I am called a child of grace. Moreover, the truth also should arise in me, that is, a new righteous character that shall continue until it perfects me. Since Christ, the truth, has come not to destroy the law, but to establish it, not only in Himself, which was done long ago, but in me and in all Christians. These are the two doctrines that should accompany one another, since they belong together, or the one is in the other, and they must always go together as long as we live here, by which the law or God's commandment may begin to work in Christians, so that the wicked disobedient persons of the world may be restrained and punished. Since they will not fear and love God, Like Christians and believers, they are obliged to fear eternal fire, perdition, and other punishments. Others, however, will be taught by it from what they've fallen and how sorely and fully they've inherited sin. For When I compare my life with the law, I see and experience always the contrary of what the law enjoins. I shall entrust to God my body and soul and love Him with my whole heart, And yet, and yet, where are we here? I would rather have a dollar in my chest than ten gods in my heart. Isn't that so? I am happier when I know how to make ten dollars than when I hear the whole gospel. Isn't that our lamentable state? Let a prince give a person a castle or several thousand dollars. What a jumping and rejoicing it creates. On the other hand, let a person be baptized or receive the communion, which is a heavenly eternal treasure. There is not one-tenth as much rejoicing. Thus we are by nature. There is none who so heartily rejoices over God's gifts and grace as over money and earthly possessions. What does that mean but that we do not love God as we ought. For if we truly trusted and loved God, we would rejoice more that he gave us the sense of sight than if we had possessed the whole world. And the word of consolation he speaks to me through the gospel ought to give me higher joy than the favor, money, wealth, and honor of the whole world that's not so, and ten dollars can make people happier than all the grace and possessions of God proves what kind of fruit we are and what a distressing and horrible fall it is in which we lie. And yet we would not see nor realize it if it were not revealed to us through the law, and we would have to remain forever in it and be lost, we were not again helped out of it. Through Christ. Therefore the law and the gospel are given to the end that we may learn to know both how not only knowing in our heart in our head but to experience them how guilty we are and to what we should again return. This now is a Christian teaching and preaching, which God be praised, we know and possess. It's not necessary at present to develop it further, but only to offer the admonition that it be maintained in Christendom with all diligence, all diligence. For Satan has continually attacked it hard and strong from the beginning until the present, and gladly would he completely extinguish it and tread it underfoot. For he cannot endure that the people continue in it and conduct themselves uprightly, and he seeks a hundred thousand arts and wiles only to crush it. Therefore I so gladly preach it as it is greatly needed, for until the present it has never been heard nor known in the papacy. For I myself was a learned doctor of theology, and yet I never understood the Ten Commandments rightly. Yea, there were many highly celebrated doctors who did not know whether there were nine, ten, or eleven commandments. And much less did we know the gospel of Christ. But the only thing that was taught and advocated was, Invoke the Virgin Mary and other saints as your mediators and intercessors. Fast often and pray much. Make pilgrimages, enter cloisters, and become monks or pay for the saying of many masses and like works. Thus we imagined when we did these things we had merited heaven. That was the time of blindness when we knew nothing of God's word but led ourselves and others into misery by our own idle talk and dreams. And I was one of those who indeed bathed in this sweat or in this bath of anxiety. Therefore, let us give heed that we may thoroughly grasp and retain this doctrine, if other fanatics and false spirits wish to attack it, so that we may be forearmed and learn while we have the time, and the beloved Son again enlightens us, and buy while the market is at our door. For it will come to this, when once these lights which God now gives have departed, Satan will not take a furlough until he raises up other fanatical spirits to do harm, as he's already commenced to do in many places during our generation. What will take place after we're gone? Therefore, learn who can learn, and learn well, so that we may know, first, the Ten Commandments, what we owe to God, if we do not know this, then we know nothing, and we will not inquire about Christ in the least, though we can talk much of him. Just like we monks did, who either held Christ to be an angry judge or despised him entirely in the face of our imaginary holiness, we fancied we were not in sin, which the Ten Commandments show and punish, but we had the natural light of reason and free will. And if we lived according to that, as much as we were able, then God would have to be stow upon us his grace and so forth, but now if we are to know Christ as our helper and Savior, then we must first know out of what he can help us, not out of fire or water or other bodily need and danger, but out of sin and the hatred of God. For whence do I know that I lie drowned in misery? From what or from no other source than from the law that must show me what my loss and disease are or I will never inquire for the physician and his help. Thus we have both parts of the help of Christ, the one that he must represent us over against God and be a cloak to cover our shame as the one that takes upon himself our sins and disgrace cloak, I say, for us, as the one who takes our sins and shame upon himself, but before God a throne of grace, in whom there is no sin or shame, but only virtue and honor, and like a hen he spreads out his wings against the buzzard, the devil with his sin and death, so that God for his sake forgives all. To us he can do no harm. But on the condition that you only remain under these wings, for while you are under his mantle and protection and do not come out from under it, sin that is still in you must not be sin for the sake of him who covers you with his righteousness. Then in the second place, Christ does not only thus cover and protect us, but he will also nourish and feed us as a hen does her little chickens. That is, he gives us the Holy Spirit and strength to begin to love God, and to keep his commandments. And this shall continue to the last day, when faith and this cloak of shame will cease, so that we will behold the Father without any medium or covering, we ourselves stand before him, and there will be no longer any sin in us to be forgiven, but all will be again restored and brought back, or perfected, as St. Paul says in Acts 13.21 purified and perfect, what Satan from the beginning disturbed and ruined. Now Christ wishes to teach this by his answer and the question, which he in reply upbraided the Pharisees, as if he should say, You know nothing more than to speak of the law which teaches you that you should love God and your neighbor, and yet you do not understand it, for you imagine you fulfilled it, though you are still far from doing so. Just like the one in Matthew 19, 20 and 21, who boasted he had kept all commandments from his youth, Christ says to him, If thou would be perfect, go sell that which thou hast, and give to the poor. This is as much as to say, Whoever will love God aright and keep his commandments must be able to sacrifice his possessions, body, and life. Therefore another thing is necessary. Christ will say, you to know, namely, that you know and possess the man called Christ, who helps us to the end that this doctrine of the law may be established and perfected in you, but what does it mean to know Christ aright? this the Pharisees and scribes do not know, for they do not consider him other than David's son, that is he who is to sit on David's throne, as born from his flesh and blood, and his lord and king, also greater and mightier than David was, and yet only to be a temporal ruler, and to make his people the lords of the world, and bring all heathen under his rule, and so forth, but that they should need him in their lost state, to help them out of sin and death, of that they knew nothing. Therefore the Holy Spirit must teach you that he was not only David's son, but also God's son, as was taught after his resurrection. Now here Christ does not explain this, but he only broaches that David in Psalm 110.1 called Christ his Lord. How then, he says, did David in the Spirit call him Lord? does not sound right, and it is against nature for a father to call his son Lord, and to be subject to him and serve him. Now David calls Christ his Lord, and a Lord to whom the Lord himself says, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That is, be like me, acknowledged and worshipped as a right and true God. For it becometh none other to sit at his right hand. He is indeed so jealous that he allows no one aside from himself to sit equal to him, as he says in the prophecy of Isaiah 48.11, My glory will I not give to another. Since Jehovah now places Christ equal with himself, he must be more than all creatures Therefore he proposes to them a great question, but lets them thus stick, for they do not understand it. And it was not yet the time to make this known public. But the meaning is, as our articles of faith teach us to believe, that Christ was David's true natural son of his blood and flesh, and also David's Lord, whom David himself must worship and hold as God. However, it was impossible to make these statements harmonize, as it is still impossible, for human reason, where the Holy Spirit does not reveal it, how the two should be at the same time in the one Christ, both that he was surely David's seed and God's son by nature. Now Christ propounded this question to teach it is not enough to have the law, which is the only thing that shows from what state we've fallen. But whoever will return again to it and become renewed, that Christ must do through a knowledge of him who is indeed born of David and is his flesh and blood, not born but not born in sin, as David and all men are born, but had to be born without man of a drop of the pure blood of a virgin, sanctified by the holy spirit that he was born a real and true man without any sin he's the only man that's been able to keep and fulfill the law like all other men by nature and yet not in the same guilt but reared without sin and god's wrath this one had to intercede in our behalf before god and be our right hand and protection be to us what the hen is to her little chickens in whom we have forgiveness of sins and deliverance from God's anger and hell. Not only this, but he also gives us the Holy Ghost to follow him, and here begins to extinguish and slay sin till we come to him and be like him without any sin and in perfect righteousness. For he was raised from the dead to the right hand of the Father, to totally abolish sin, death, and hell, bring us to the new eternal righteousness and eternal life. Amen. The 19th Sunday after Trinity. The text is Matthew 9, 1 through 8. And he entered into a ship and passed over, and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whither is easier? to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. He rose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. My friends in Christ, as we hear and enjoy this gospel every year, I hope you also understand it and know what it teaches us. May God grant that the right life may also follow this knowledge. For the greater part of the gospel we hear only with the ear, and we know it, but do not live according to it, whereas it should be so taught that few words and nothing but life would be the result. But what shall we do for it? We can do no more than preach it, and no further raise it and carry it. We must preach it and urge it until God comes and gives us His grace to the end that our words be few, and that life may spring forth and grow. The first theme here offered us is the gospel, when Christ says, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven these words show and contain in brief what the kingdom of christ is namely this sweet voice these motherly and fatherly words penetrating our inmost soul thy sins are forgiven in no other sense are we to view the kingdom of christ so far as it is understood than how we are to live before god As you, beloved, well know that our highest duty is, rightly, to establish the conscience that we may know how we stand before God and our neighbor. Therefore we must also hold fast to these words and become accustomed to the expression, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven, and like sayings of which the gospel is full. From this it follows that the kingdom of Christ is realized where nothing but comfort and the forgiveness of sins reign, not only in words to proclaim it, which is also necessary, but also in deed, as we shall see in this example. For he did not only speak these words into the ear of this sick man, but he also forgave his sins and comforted him. This knowledge is proper for us Christians you know, it is indeed easily and quickly said and heard, but when it comes to the test, the light is early extinguished, and Satan soon leads us astray, as you here observe that the scribes undertake to destroy this knowledge. I have before often said and will always say that we should beware and properly learn the character and nature of the kingdom of Christ. Well, you know how reason is inclined in its every movement to fall from faith and from this knowledge to works, but here you see no works at all, no merit. There is neither command nor law. There is nothing more than the offering of Christ's assistance, his comfort and his grace. Only kindness meets the man sick of the palsy. Therefore, if the kingdom of Christ is to grow, we must keep out of it with the law, and not be busy with works, for it is not in harmony with it, to say, Go out, run hither and thither, and atone for your sins. You must observe and do this and that, if you will be free from sin, but directly without any work and law, out of pure grace, your sins are forgiven. Therefore it is beyond the sphere of the kingdom of Christ to urge the people with the law. But we receive such things only with the ear and on the tongue, and it enters not into the depths of the heart, for sin at all times still hangs about our necks. It clings firmly to us as St. Paul speaks of this in Romans 7:18 and 19 and Hebrews 12, 1 but in death we will experience it. Of this class are at present our fanatics who boast of the Holy Spirit, pretend they would do better. Some of them are also in our midst. Listen to us. They contend that it's not enough for us to preach only faith and love. Yea, they say, you must do better and climb much higher. How high then must I climb? You must destroy pictures. You must kill the ungodly and do whatever they propose. This filth now enters nearly every community where the gospel has just been planted. These terrors of Satan will also come to us, as I've often warned you. Take heed that you remain sound in your knowledge and in a true doctrine of Christ, for this knowledge and this light is soon lost. Thus I say, my friends, and would beseech you not to esteem that spirit great who proposes to you any kind of work all it what you may, even if it would raise the dead, which they have not yet been able to do. And how is it that they say, we must kill the godless, even if Moses commanded it, that you must really do it? What sort of Christians are you then? But by this you shall truly experience which spirits are of God and which are not. For if you give me a work to do, it is not the Holy Spirit who does it. But he goes and first brings me to the grace of Christ, then he leads me to the works. Well, thus he speaks, Thy sins are forgiven, be of good cheer and the like. He does not first insist on the works, but first leads up to God through his sweet word and grace, and does not immediately refer you to do some work, but later you will find works enough to do unto your neighbor, and your neighbor includes your family wife and children. But the fanatics soon torment us with works and profess to have a nobler spirit. They urge and insist upon our doing something first of all, permit faith and love to be overlooked. This, of course, is not of the Holy Spirit. Christ first takes possession of the conscience When it is right in faith toward God, then he also directs us to do works toward our neighbor. He first highly extols faith and keeps works in the background. This they cannot understand. I would forgive them everything if they would only not patch and mend their good works to which they trust their existence, honor, and fame. I would not care about their destroying all pictures, melting cups and bells into one mass, but that they should make a matter of conscience out of it for those who do not destroy pictures, just as though the Holy Spirit or faith were not present unless this work be performed. I say this, even if it were a work which God at this present hour commanded, I would not so insist upon it and condemn those who do not immediately obey it, and would find him some kind of protection, as that he is yet perhaps weak and thus spread over him the kingdom of grace. Let us be aware of the fact that the work among them is directed to God and not toward our neighbor. They make their works a necessity and say, If you do this, then you are a Christian. If you will not do it, you are no Christian. Where this or that is done, there are Christians. And the fame follows their work, but they want to be esteemed better than others. Now you have the true light, therefore be warned, prove the spirits. We do not wish to prefer ourselves as these persons do, but we boast in this, that we hear the word, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. I know that I have a gracious God, but these spirits cannot do this, therefore it is a mere devilish apparition that they carry home from home to home. In this they lie against the Holy Spirit and blame the Holy Ghost that he is the Father of their cause. And even if the works were good, the forcing and compelling must remain in the background. Let them then keep quiet about setting us an example by their crazy works. The Kingdom of Christ consists in finding all our praise and boast in grace. Other works should be free not to be urged. Neither should we wish by them to become Christians, but condescend with them to our neighbor. Thus we should hear this gospel, to hold fast to its expressions, so that they may be written in our hearts, that this light, this word and lamp, may truly shine in us, by which we can judge all other doctrine. Now let's not take these words so lightly, for this is a hard matter to learn, easy to go astray in this point. Thus he says to the man sick with a palsy, thy sins are forgiven. These and similar words are to be taken to heart and meditated upon since they are nothing but pure grace. Thy sins are forgiven and no work by which the conscience is oppressed and forced to do something. Thus with these words, you must protect yourselves against false teachers. Now it's time to turn the tape over We have now sowed a little of the word, and this the devil cannot stand, for he never sleeps. The grubs and the beetles will come and infect it, yet, so it must be, Christ will prove his word and examine who has received it and who not. Therefore let us remain on the right road to the kingdom of Christ, and not go about with works and urge and force the works of the law but only with the words of the gospel, which comfort the conscience. Be happy, be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven. By this observe how narrow and how wide the kingdom of Christ is. Few there be who so receive the word that it tastes good to them, judge themselves by it, and who understand what is said by, thy sins are forgiven. We are now in the kingdom of Christ. Why then does he mention sin? Are sins always there? No one belongs to this kingdom unless his sins are revealed to him by the gospel. Otherwise, these words apply to no one. Thy sins are forgiven. Indeed, all hear the gospel, but it does not enter the hearts of all, for they do not all feel their sins,
1: but the gospel
0: preaches that everything we have in us is sin, therefore it also offers comfort. Forgiveness of sins is here. If I am to receive forgiveness of sins, I must have knowledge of sin. Forgiveness of sins is nothing more than two words in which the whole kingdom of Christ consists. There must be sins. If we are conscious of them, we must confess them. When I have confessed them, forgiveness and grace are immediately present. In these two words, the whole kingdom of Christ consists. Forgiveness of sin. Before forgiveness is present, there is nothing but sin. This sin must be confessed that I may feel and know all that is in me is blindness. Otherwise, forgiveness of sins could not exist where there is no sin. However, there is no lack of sins to confess. But the lack is in not feeling and knowing our sins to confess them. Then only forgiveness of them follows. But it is quite a different thing when God forgives sins than when one man forgives another. A man forgives another his sins in a way that he thinks of them again tomorrow or casts them at him again tomorrow. But when God forgives sins, it's quite a different thing than when man forgives. For God condemns no more. He banishes all wrath from him. Yea, he no more thinks of the sin, as he himself says in the prophet Isaiah 43.25. Now, if this wrath is gone, then hell, the devil, death, and all misfortune that the devil may bring with him must also disappear. Instead of wrath, God gives grace, comfort, salvation, and everything good that he himself is. Sin is pure unhappiness. Forgiveness, pure happiness. The divine majesty is great. Great is also that which it forgives. As a man is, so is also his forgiveness. But you must know in your heart how great these words are, in which you know how to trust, yea, for which you can cheerfully die. But only few rightly receive these words, therefore there are but few true Christians. This, then, is the kingdom of Christ, and he who possesses it thus possesses it in the right way. Here there is no work, but only the acknowledgment of all our misfortune and the reception of all the gifts of God in Christ Jesus. We have to say, it includes, of course, here there is nothing but simple comfort. Here the words are continually heard. Be joyful, let not your conscience be troubled because of sin, because you have not done a great amount of good. I will forgive you all. Therefore it is not by merit, but it is a simple gift. This is the gospel upon which faith depends, to which you can grasp and keep these words, that they may not have been spoken in vain. For we have no other comfort of which God tells us to boast, than that God says, Be of good cheer, be comforted, for I forgive thy sins, and in my forgiveness you can glory and rejoice. Here then you have reason to boast and rejoice, but not in your own works. This a work righteous person cannot do, for honor always follows as they've said. Honor follows virtue as a shadow follows the man. If it is the honor of works, whether man or God has commanded him, it's nothing. It's the honor of the works God does in us, and it is all right, as Psalm 118.16 says, the right hand of the Lord is exalted, the right hand of the Lord doth valiantly. As Though he would say, in this will I boast in glory, namely, in that he hath exalted me out of death, hell, and all evil and I would say by the one that sits at his right hand. Work-righteous people have have not this glory, for they have not the word. But as the work is, so is the praise. They urge and compel us to depart from the word to human work. But the Holy Spirit urges us from our works to the word. The former boast of their works, the latter where the Holy Spirit is, rejoice internally in the heart with God that he has done this work, and they remain clinging to grace and attribute nothing at all to their own works. Thus the scribes do here when they hear these words, they say among themselves, this man blasphemeth. For this is the nature of the holy gospel and a true word of God, where it is truly believed, That it is blasphemed on both sides, and the whole world would destroy it, as was the case in the time of the apostles, and as our raging princes now do, who simply wish it were dead, entirely crushed and destroyed with all those who preach and confess it. This however is the least persecution. The other persecution is much worse, which takes place among us as it also did in apostolic times among the apostles. So too our country squires who enjoy the gospel with us do not want to be followers of the pope, but they want to be regarded as Christians. These ones plunge into it so furiously they are that they boast of the gospel, and yet they trust in their work. And here the Holy Spirit must be called the devil. There the beautiful spirit. But we must say that their cause is not just. Then they say, your cause is not just. For the wicked spirit does not rest unless it be praised. We have a Lord of protection. He will successfully accomplish his work. Paul calls all false spirits bold and proud. Yes, in their filth with their protectors, they are proud and impudent. Otherwise, they are the most cowardly villains that can be found. When they are to appear and answer for their conduct, they cannot produce a single answer. Among themselves they are bold and venture to catch God in his own word, but when it comes to the test, they simply despair. But the Holy Spirit stands firm, checks their buffeting, makes us bold and courageous, comforts weak consciences, and says, Be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven. The true spirit is bashful and becomes bashful in the sight of God, as Christians do, who bow before God, honor him, and are not proud. But before tyrants, the Holy Spirit encourages them, so that they fear neither tyrants nor devils, and are not frightened even if they tore their heads from their shoulders. In God's presence they fear and tremble like a rustling leaf. But alas, I see the great mass of people are only concerned about continually hearing, hearing without understanding what is preached. And when the time comes that they should give an answer, they stand like the pipers and can answer nothing. Thus we also go forth to execution. We must endure such assaults and factitious spirits cannot change it, nevertheless we may well comfort ourselves with the thought that we have the true foundation, that our cause is right and theirs is wrong. This they also know well enough, and for this reason they can never be bold except among themselves, and there they may boast as long as they please. But the kingdom of Christ consists in this, and thereby grows, namely, that the conscience be comforted with the word. What else takes place through works and laws all pertains to our neighbor for I need no works when it comes to God or before him must only be careful rightly to confess my sins then I have the forgiveness of sins and am one with God all which the Holy Spirit works in me then I break forth with blessings toward my neighbor as they did here brought the man sick with the falsy to the Lord, those were in the kingdom, those who brought the sick man, or it shows who are in the kingdom, as Evangelist says, that the Lord had respect unto their faith. For had they not had any faith, they would not have brought the sick to the Lord. Faith precedes works, and works follow faith. Therefore, because they are in the kingdom by faith, they bring in the sick man, and thus do the work. On this earth man lives not for the sake of works, in order that they may be profitable to him, for he is not in need of them. But if you do good works in order thereby to obtain and merit something from God, all is lost, and you are already fallen from this kingdom. But since you believe and continue to live, you ought to know that you live for this very cause, namely to carry in the sick man. God does not desire the Christian to live for himself. Yea, cursed is the life that lives for self. For all that one lives after he is a Christian, he lives for others. So these also who bring in the sick man, they no longer live for themselves, but their lives serve others. Yes, with their faith they win for the sick man, a faith of his own. For well, this sick man had at first no faith, but after he heard the word, Christ instills into him a faith of his own and awakens him with the gospel, as he is accustomed to instill faith by the word. Thus all works should be done only to the end that we may see how they agree with the service of other people to bring them to a true faith and lead them to Christ. If I tear down pictures in churches, that men may see a Christian as present. That's of no profit to the people, neither does it preach how to become free from sin. But the person only desires praise, which does not lift up the conscience, and only makes the people gape with ears, eyes, and mouth wide open. It is a contemptible art to demolish pictures, but to know the kingdom of Christ that I or others may be benefited. This is well done. But you will not accomplish this, even if you tear down all the churches, but only by hearing the words, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven, then by bringing others to God's word. The word must be enforced. It must be driven into men. Here I must eat and drink, adorn and clothe myself, not that I may live, but that I may enforce the word. For where the life of a Christian is not centered in the word, it is not right. I am required to aid the conscience with the word. I must give my neighbor meat and drink and do all I can for him in order to teach or reach the chief thing, namely to encourage the conscience, as they do here, who assist the sick man to recover his bodily health. Although it's a kindness, or work to his body. Nevertheless, they so help him that his soul is also strengthened. Thus I feed the hungry, give the thirsty drink, clothe the naked and the like. Yet I do this not only that he may eat and drink, but that I may secure the opportunity to tell him the word, thus also to bring him to Christ. These works are outside of the kingdom, done to those who are not in it, in order to bring them into the kingdom. Thus the Holy Spirit preaches, but the mad spirit of the separatists only desires to form great wonders, to see and do miracles and signs. It is a miracle enough that people learn by our preaching to know Christ and obtain a joyful conscience. Likewise, that I learned monachism, priestcraft, everything belonging to popery is nothing. To be nothing is for me a great miracle. There is nothing in it when they make the charge that we perform no miracles. Although they do not shine so brightly, and our ministers perform no miracles as the Papists imagine they do, nevertheless our light is pure and our knowledge correct. We truly preach the gospel, and this they must, of course, conscientiously confess before each and every one, whether they desire to do so or not. So you have learned here now that the kingdom of Christ and the gospel are devoted to the end, that you concentrate all your life, whether you be a wife, child, or husband, that you may be one who brings the sick to Christ, and thus be of assistance to others. Now we should also consider a little the faith of others and the power to forgive sins, had we the time. I said before that it's an error to baptize children into the faith of the Church. Men preached as though they were baptized without faith. This error enters among us by force at present, for the devil does not sleep. They think infants have no faith. The Pope, with his subordinates, have hitherto maintained that children have no faith, but are laid into the lap of the Christian Church, and were baptized in the faith of universal Christendom. These new fanatics, like the Pope, also say that children have no faith, but that we should wait until they grow up. We say that the faith of others does not assist unto salvation. Even if there were two Christendoms present, the child must itself believe in Christ. For I have not been born in the place of the child or for the child, neither will I die in its stead. It has a death and birth of its own. If it is to live and become free from death, it must also come to this through faith in Christ. However, we pray for the children, as well as for all unbelievers, and preach and pray and labor. The unbelieving and children may also come and believe, for this we also live. So these people here had also faith, but not the man of the palsy, yet he must receive it if he is to get well, otherwise their faith would not have helped him. They, however, in their faith prayed Christ to give the man sick of the palsy a faith of his own. So the faith of others assists to the end, that I may obtain a faith of my own. Yes, one might say, how do we know whether children believe or not? Neither do we know who among adults believe or who do not. If I be baptized as an adult and say, I believe, how can you know whether I believe? How do you know how if I were to lie? no one else can know it. To this everyone is brought by his own heart and thoughts. If it is right, it is right. The child cannot stand on my faith, if I have scarcely enough faith for myself. Nor shall I lay it into the lap of Christendom, but into the word of Christ, where he says, Suffer little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And thus I shall say, here, O Christ, I bring a little child to thee, thou hast commanded me to bring it to thee. Now I have done my part, Christ will also certainly do his part. So I do not baptize a child in my own faith or in the faith of Christendom, but my faith and Christendom bring the child to baptism, in order that by rightly bringing it, God may give it a faith of its own, that it may believe as I believe and be preserved in the name of Christ, same word that Christ has given me. And I do not baptize a child on that it has no faith, as the Bohemians think, but when it grows up, it shall then obtain faith and speak the word of God over the child, such a way like they do, by saying, Thy sins are forgiven thee, and yet it does not, as they hold, believe the words until it grows up. Is not this to charge the word of God as being fault? Now, to sum it up, I can, of course, by my prayers and faith, help another that he may also believe, but I cannot believe for him. The Pharisees knew very well that to forgive sins was the work of God and belonged to him alone. For this reason, they regarded Christ as a blasphemer, who as a man pretended to forgive sins. The forgiveness of sins is of two kinds. First is to drive sin from the heart and infuse grace into it. And this is a work of God alone. Second kind is a declaration of the forgiveness of sin. This man can do to his fellow man. But here, Christ does both. He instills the spirit into the heart. And externally, he declares, Forgiveness with the Word, which is a declaration and public preaching of the internal forgiveness. All men who are Christians and have been baptized have this power, for with this they praise Christ and the Word is put into their mouth so that they may and are able to say if they wish and as often as it is necessary. Behold, O man, God offers thee his grace. forgives thee all thy sins. Be comforted, thy sins are forgiven. Only believe, and thou wilt surely have forgiveness. This word of consolation shall not cease among Christians until the last day. This word, thy sins are forgiven. Be of good cheer. Such language a Christian always uses and openly declares the forgiveness of sins. For this reason, and in this manner, a Christian has power to forgive sins. Therefore if I say to you, Thy sins are forgiven, then believe it is surely as though God himself had said it to you. But who could do this if Christ had not descended, had not instructed me, and said that we should forgive one another our sins, as when he says in John twenty, twenty-two to 23 Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sends ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sends ye retain; they are retained. Another place, he says, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. The word penetrates and the word performs it. Now, if there were no man on earth to forgive sins, and there were only law and works, what a weak and miserable thing a poor, troubled conscience would be. But now when God adequately instructs everyone so that he is able to say to another, Thy sins are forgiven thee. Wherever thou art, the golden age has arrived. I like to emphasize wherever thou art. He's not saying a certain body of people, is he? Christ is the one that forgives sins to the sinner that feels them. And that is proclaimed by the word of any of God's children. And that is surely a golden age, a golden moment On this account we are to be defiant and boastful against sins, so that we can say to our brother, who is in anxiety and distress on account of his sins, Be of good cheer, my brother, thy sins are forgiven. Although I cannot give thee the Holy Ghost and faith, I can yet declare them unto thee, Thou believest, thou hast them. They who thus believe these words praise and glorify God, even as they do here in the gospel. That is, that God has given man power to forgive sins, and thus the kingdom of Christ is spread, the conscience is strengthened and comforted. This we do now through the word. God grant that we may also thus understand it. Amen. Now. We have the second sermon for the 19th Sunday after Trinity. It says that this sermon appeared instead of the preceding one in the C edition. This was delivered in October of 1529. The other sermon, I believe, was about the year of 1523, 45, somewhere in there. The theme of this gospel is a great and important article called, or the article of faith called, the forgiveness of sins, which, when rightly understood, makes an honest Christian and gives eternal life. Therefore, it is necessary in the Christian church to teach this article diligently and unceasingly, so we may learn to understand it clearly and distinctly, for this is a great, one great and difficult art of a Christian, where he will have enough to learn as long as he lives, so that he need not look for anything new, higher, or better. But that we may rightly understand this, we must thoroughly know how to distinguish two powers or kinds of piety, one here upon earth, which God has also ordained, as included under the Second Table of the Ten Commandments, this is called the righteousness, Of the world or of man serves to the end that we may live together on earth and enjoy the gifts of God that He has given us. For it is His wish that this present life be kept under proper restraint and passed in peace, quietude, and harmony, each one attending to his own affairs and not interfering with the business, property, or person of another. For this cause, God has also added a special blessing. It's in Leviticus. 18.5 18.5 Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. That is, whosoever on earth is honest in the sight of all men shall enjoy life. It shall be well with him, and he shall live long. But if, on the other hand, man is unwilling to do this, he has ordained that the sword, the gallows, the rack, fire, water, and the like be used with which to restrain and check those who will not be pious. Where such punishment is not administered and a whole country becomes so utterly bad and perverted that the officers of law can no longer restrain, then God sends pestilence, famine, war, or other terrible plagues or to subvert the land and destroy the wicked, as has happened to the Jews, the Greeks, the Romans, and others. From this we may learn his will, namely, that such piety be exercised and maintained, and know that he will provide what is necessary. But if such piety is not practiced, he will in turn take away and destroy everything. This is, in short, the sense and whole substance of this piety on earth, but it is further necessary to urge it and to admonish people that every man diligently, zealously, and voluntarily exercise himself in it, that he be not driven to it by force and punishment. This admonition consists in setting forth God's commandments and in applying them to every station of life on earth, as God has ordained and appointed them. They are to be respected and highly honored these commandments of God he's talking about, we should find pleasure in them and heartily do what's required in a different spheres of life. When God says, Honor thy father and thy mother, every child, man-servant, maidservant, citizen and the like, should receive the word with joy, have no greater treasure on earth, and not vainly imagine if he do this, he's already halfway or altogether in paradise. And this should be solely done that every heart may be assured without a doubt and say, Now I know that such work, life, or position is right and proper, and is assuredly well pleasing to God, for I have His word and command as a sure witness, which never deceives nor fails me. Now I added in this to make this make sense. It, it didn't make sense for here. I'm sure the translator messed up, messed up here, because. He says, and not imagine, if he do this, he's already halfway or altogether in paradise. Luther didn't mean to say that. Luther meant to say that that he truly is. It's not a vain, ima- vain imagination. I added the word vain. It's not a vain imagination to believe that he's already halfway or altogether in paradise where there's God's commandments kept. And I know that's Luther's understanding, which proves out as you read him, other places. As we go on here, you'll see that it all bears out. For Do not let this be the least grace upon earth, when you have come to this decision in your heart, and your conscience rests upon it. We owe this assurance to the blessed gospel alone, in which we should delight, and which we must reverence, even if we receive no other benefit or use from it than this that it quiets our conscience and positively teaches us how to live, and in what relation we stand to God. In what error and blindness we were aforetime, when not even a spark of such teaching enlightened us, we allowed ourselves to be led in the name of the devil by the whims of every lying preacher. We tried all kinds of works, ran hither and thither, expended and wasted our energies, money and property. Here we established masses and altars, and over there cloisters and brotherhoods. Everyone was groping for the way in which he might serve God, yet no one found it, but all remained in darkness. For there was no God who might say, this is pleasing to me, this I have commanded, and so forth. Yes, our blind guides did nothing less than lose sight of God's word separated it from good works. Instead of these, they set up other works everywhere. In addition to this, they discarded and despised the positions in life which God had appointed, as though he knew no better, or even as well as we, how to manage his affairs. Therefore, we must constantly take heed to inculcate this word of God, which does not burden us with many or any, special, great, and difficult works, but refers us to the condition in which we live, that we look for nothing else but with a cheerful heart, remain satisfied in it, and be assured that by such work more is accomplished than if one had established all the cloisters and kept all the orders, although it be the most insignificant domestic work. For hitherto we've been woefully deceived by the fine luster and pomp of works, hoods, bald pates, coarse apparel, by fasts, wakes, pious looks, playing the devotee and going barefoot. Our foolishness consists in laying too much stress upon a show of works, when these do not litter as something extraordinary, we regard them as of no value. Poor fools that we are, we do not see that God has attached and bound this precious treasure, namely his word to such common works as filial obedience, external, domestic, or civil affairs, so as to include them in his order and command which he wishes us to accept same as though he himself had appeared from heaven. What would you do if Christ himself with all the angels were visibly to descend and command you in your home to sweep your house and wash the pans and kettles? How happy you would feel, and you would not know how to act for joy, not for the work's sake, but that you knew that thereby you were serving him who is greater than heaven and earth. We would only consider this, and by the power of the Word, look beyond us and think that it is not man but God in heaven who wishes and commands these things. We would run full speed and in a most faithful and diligent manner, rather do these common insignificant works as they are regarded than any others. There is no other reason why this is not done than the simple fact that the works are separated from the Word, and God's command is not regarded nor respected. We move along in a blind, drowsy manner, and think the doing of the works is all sufficient. Because we regard these works as insignificant, we stare and look around for others. Become indolent and fretful, do nothing in love, faithfulness and obedience, have no scruples on account of our negligence, are faithless to our fellow men, injure or vex them, thus heap up ourselves all manner of misery wrath and misfortune this then is one part of our discourse that this external righteousness be urged both in admonitions and in threatenings not be considered as of no importance for whosoever despises it despises God and his word therefore let every man look to himself what he is or what he has to do and what God demands of him, whether it be to rule, to command and order, or on the contrary to obey, serve, and labor, that he may attend to the duties of his office with all faithfulness for God's sake, let him be assured that God has more respect for such faithfulness than for all the work and piety of the monks who never yet have attained to this outward righteousness Or are they able to extol all their works and doings as heartily as a child or a servant girl performing their duties according to God's command? Oh, what a blessed world we would have if people believed this, and every man remained at his post, always keeping in mind God's will and command. Then there would shower from heaven all kinds of blessings and gifts, of the many vexations and heartaches which we now have, are looking for, and deserve. Above this external piety there is another which does not belong to this temporal life on earth, but which avails only before God, which leads us to the life beyond and keeps us in it. The former piety consists in works which this present life requires to be done among men whether they be our superiors or inferiors, our neighbors, or our kindred. It has its reward here upon earth. Also it ends with this life. And they who do not practice it shorten their days. But this latter piety moves and soars far above everything that's upon earth and has nothing to do with works. Or how can it have works since all that this body can perform That which is called works is already included in the former piety. This piety is now called the grace of God, or the forgiveness of sins, of which Christ speaks in this and other Gospels, which is not an earthly but a heavenly righteousness. It does not come of our work and ability, but is the work and gift of God. For that human piety may well shield us against punishment and the hangman and permit us to enjoy temporal gifts, the human one, but it cannot attain for us God's grace and the forgiveness of sin. Therefore, even though we may have this external piety, we must nevertheless have a much higher one, which alone avails before God, frees us from sin and an evil conscience, and leads us out of death into eternal life. This is, furthermore, the only part or article in doctrine by believing which we become and are called Christians, and which separates and divorces us from all other saints on earth. For they all have a different foundation and nature of their saintliness, peculiar exercises, and rigorous life. It separates us also from the works of those holding positions and offices which are approved by the word of God, which are indeed much higher and better than all the self-chosen ecclesiasticism of the monks. These also constitute a holy calling, so that they are called pious, and they deserve praise of all men, because they do their duty. But all this doesn't make one a Christian. He alone is a Christian who receives this article in faith and is assured that he is in the kingdom of grace in which Christ protects him, daily forgives him his sins. But he who looks for something else or wishes to deal otherwise with God must know that he is no Christian, but is rejected and condemned by God. For this reason, the greatest skill and intelligence is needed to grasp and understand this righteousness. And in our hearts, and before God rightly to distinguish it from the above-mentioned outward righteousness. For this is, as has been said, the skill and wisdom of the Christian, but it is so high and great that even all the beloved apostles could not speak enough of it, and yet it meets the painful misfortune that no art is mastered as soon as this, As they do nowadays, you read this paragraph, Confess in your heart, Jesus is Lord, and sign your name here, and then go on. Luther says, There is no greater theme for a preacher than the grace of God and the forgiveness of sin. Yet we are such wicked people that when we have once heard or read it, we think we know it. We are immediately masters and doctors. Keep looking for something greater, as though we had done everything. Thus we made new factions and divisions. I have now been teaching and studying this subject with all diligence for many years, more than any one of those who imagine and know it all, preaching and writing and reading, yet I cannot boast of having mastered it, and I am glad that I still remain a pupil with those who are just beginning to learn. For this reason I must admonish and warn all such as want to be Christians, both teachers and pupils, They guard themselves against such shameful delusion and surfeit, and understand that this subject is not difficult. Did I read that right? No. And understand that this subject is most difficult and the greatest art that can be found upon earth, so that even Paul had to confess and say, 2 Corinthians 9:15, that it is an unspeakable gift that is, one which cannot be described among men with words, so that they may regard it as highly and dearly as it really is in itself. The reason for this is that man's understanding cannot get beyond this external piety of works and cannot comprehend the righteousness of faith. But the greater and more skillful this understanding is, the more it confines itself to works and rests upon them, the understanding of the external piety, It's not possible for man in times of temptation and distress, when his conscience smites him, to cease from groping around for works on which to stand and rest. Then we seek and enumerate the many good deeds which we would like to do or have done. Because we find none, the heart begins to doubt and despair. This weakness adheres so firmly to our nature that even those who have faith and recognize the grace of God over the forgiveness of sins not overcome it with their efforts and exertions, and must daily contend against it. In short, it is entirely beyond human knowledge and understanding, ability, and power to ascend above this earthly righteousness and transfer oneself into this article of faith. Although one hears much about it and is conversant with it, there continues, nevertheless, the old delusion inborn corruption which would bring its own works before God and make them the foundation of salvation. Such is the case, I say, with those who are Christians and fight against this work righteousness. Other critics and inexperienced souls are even lost in it. Therefore this doctrine, that our piety before God consists entirely in the forgiveness of sins must be rightly comprehended and firmly maintained. We must therefore get beyond ourselves and ascend higher than our reason, which keeps us in conflict with ourselves, which reminds us both of sin and good works. We must soar so high as to see neither sin nor good works, but be rooted and grounded in this article and see and know nothing besides. Therefore, let grace or forgiveness be set in opposition, not only against sin, but also against good works. Let all human righteousness and holiness be excluded. Thus there are in man two conflicting powers. Externally in this life he is to be pious and do good works and the like. But if he aims beyond this life and wishes to deal with God, he must know that here neither his sin nor his piety avails anything. Though he may feel the sins which disturb his conscience, and although the law demands good works, he will not listen or give heed to them, but will boldly reply, If I have sin, Christ has forgiveness. Yea, I am seated on a throne to which sin cannot attain. Now we'll continue this on the next tape.